I'm actually just glad to be here alive today. I, I told Carolyn I went out for my afternoon run, and normally it's pretty uneventful. But I had my headphones on, and I always run in the lane facing oncoming traffic. I didn't know my buddy, and some of you guys know him. John was out driving around with his girlfriend, and he thought he was going to have some fun with me. So I'm in the middle of my run, songs on, right behind me, just bah, bah, bah. And I jumped onto the sidewalk, and I see them both, and they're laughing so hard, they're almost crying. They said, you look just like a deer jumping out of the way, man. And I said, you're lucky I love you. Then <laughs> I, after I caught my breath and my heart slowed down a little bit, I, I went on to continue my run. But John's not real smart, because he went ahead and said, I'm going to take my dog for a walk. And I didn't know that. I went out in the field behind our neighborhood. And by the time I got back, I see John with his little bulldog walking down the sidewalk. And I said, Jesus is gracious, but I feel like some revenge. <laughs> so I get up behind the sidewalk, right behind him as quiet as I can. And I go, Bruh! and I watch him jump all the way off the sidewalk. And he got this real indignant look on his face. He said, you're going to scare my dog. And I'm like, well, it's okay to scare me, but I can't scare your dog. What's up with that, man? So I'm just glad to be here alive. Hey, tonight, I wanted to share a bit of an article that came off the opinion page on CNN.com. And it was an interesting article by a man named Paul Zak. The, the title of the article was, Why Doesn't God Go Away? Why Doesn't God Go Away? And I want to read you just a bit of it, and then we'll walk you through why. He says, roughly 6% of Americans report that they are atheists or agnostics, according to a 2012 Pew Research Center poll. But that means that over 90% believe in a God. Pew also reports that 80% profess a religious affiliation, and half of those with a religious affiliation regularly attend church. So what motivates 120 million Americans to attend a church, synagogue, or temple? After gaining permission, I went to a Christian church, this is where it gets interesting, and took blood from volunteers before and after a Sunday service. A majority of participants released oxytocin over the course of the service. Those who released oxytocin in their blood reported that they felt closer to their communities, said they would volunteer to help other community members. We didn't find that the change in oxytocin was associated with an increased sense of connection to God or some ultimate reality. In fact, there was no discernible difference between non-religious and religious rituals at stimulating oxytocin release. A rugby team I studied produced as much oxytocin during their warm-up as did evangelical Christians who worshipped and sang in my lab. Research from other scholars has shown that regular churchgoers are generally happier and healthier. Why? Oxytocin reduces stress responses and having more relationships makes us happy. Churches also give attendance a chance to help others, another activity that increases one's satisfaction with life. And he closes his article with this quote. As long as churches use rituals to bring people together, God is unlikely to go away. So let's go back to his initial question. So why doesn't God go away? The way Paul Zach answered that question in that article, God doesn't go away because of oxytocin. <laughs> because people feel good when they come together at church. 
But I thought about that, and I thought, okay, so what if? What if all of the churches in the country theoretically got together and decided to cancel services this weekend, to cancel all of our Easter rituals, where people come together and build up that oxytocin? That, does that, that then mean that God has gone away, that, that he no longer exists? Or to think about it another way, some of those church meetings he talked about, he, he referenced the good feelings that people got from coming together. But what if there were other people in that same church meeting that didn't feel so good? What if they just had a rough week? Or what if the church service itself made them uncomfortable as God worked with them on some issues in their lives? Whose feelings win the day? Is it the people that feel good in the service? And since there's more of them, then God exists and he's real and he hasn't gone away. Or is it the, the people that don't feel good about God? And maybe they outnumber and, and then God isn't real. Paul's act says God does not go away because we get good feelings when we go to church. The Bible presents an altogether different answer. God doesn't go away simply because... God is. You see this even in his answer to Moses, right? At the burning bush, who should I tell him sent me? What was his answer? I am, period. Now, some of us don't like periods in our relativistic world, but that's the way God said it. And the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time defending God's existence either. It just sort of comes right out and and assumes it, doesn't it? Right from the beginning, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Fourth word of the Bible, God created the world. You go on into the New Testament, Romans 1.20, Paul gets even more plain. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, listen to this, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. David hits it head on in Psalm 14.1. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, in order to get to that place where you boldly assert that there is no God, you have to do some pretty serious suppression of some logical and moral realities in the world. The Bible just assumes the existence of God. And And the truth is, either he exists or he doesn't, right? My feelings about whether he exists or not have no bearing on whether or not his existence is true. Can we agree on that? Now, what if we lived in a world where everything really was based on how I felt about it? Can you imagine that? Like this week I went down to Phoenix to do a memorial service and there were parts on my drive on 17 where I did not feel real good about all the traffic around me especially when you get squeezed in between a couple slow semis. Now, how many of you think that just because I didn't feel good about that traffic, that all of a sudden it all disappeared and I had I-17 all to myself? Does anybody believe that happened just because I didn't feel good about the traffic? No, or those of you who are married, let's say I say something stupid or hurtful to Carolyn, and then all of a sudden there's this tension in the room. And just because I'm uncomfortable with the tension and I don't feel good about it, it all goes away and we're living like in the best parts of a romance novel just like that. How many of you husbands know that it doesn't work like that? (laughs) My my feelings about something, be they good or bad, don't determine uh, the reality of, of the situation, right? 
It's the same with spiritual truth, whether it's God's existence that we started out talking about, or this weekend in particular, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either it happened or it didn't. How I feel about it does not change the reality of whether it happened or not. What I want to get at tonight is that being a Christian, being a believer in Jesus Christ is more than just being optimistic. It's more than just thinking happy thoughts. It's more than just feeling good. Being a believer in Jesus Christ is altogether based on a historic event. The historic event that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. And those of you who were here last week, we heard his story, how he met the risen Lord on the Damascus Road, and it turned his life around. Meeting the risen Lord changed him so much, he wrote a whole chapter about the resurrection. It's 58 verses, and you can all breathe a sigh of relief because we're only going to hit about 12 of them tonight. But I'd encourage you to read his words about the resurrection. We're going to look at some of them. Here's where he starts, though. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. This is what really matters the most. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared. That to Paul is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he went on to appear to many people after his resurrection. If that really happened, it changes everything. But the rest of this chapter is interesting. I love Paul because what he's going to do is he's going to go out of his way to show us how if it did not happen, we might as well just go hang it all up. If the resurrection did not happen, we might as well just stop playing this game we call church and discipleship and whatever else you call it. And I want to walk you through a few of those verses. Verse 14, check this out. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. I want you to notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey, as long as everybody feels good and feels uplifted by by those sermons, keep at it. He's not saying, hey, as long as you believe in something helps you live a better moral life, it's great. He's like, no. If Christ is not raised, this preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. So stop coming on Saturday night. Stop going to all the trouble to set up all these chairs and play all this music and and drive here and put out all those signs. You're wasting your time. He goes on in verse 15. He says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Notice what he's not like. He's not like, Hey, at least you're going out there telling people about Jesus is going to bring some encouragement to them. That, that's good. And I'm glad you're at least trying to encourage people somehow. He's like, no, you're liars. You're a false witness. So, so stop being a part of a missional community. Stop going out into your community and telling people about Jesus. Because if he's not raised, you're a bunch of liars. Stop it. Verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, believing in him, are lost. Notice what he's not like. He's not like, hey, as long as you're sincere in whatever you believe, God will understand. He'll forgive you. He's like, no, if if Christ did not die for your sins and rise again, your sins were not taken care of. You're still responsible for every one of them before a perfectly holy God that demands perfection. And your sin will lead you to an eternity apart from God if Christ is not raised. And those we know that have died believing in him are forever lost if Christ is not raised. He goes on to say in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's not like, hey, just think happy thoughts and good things will come to you. He's like, hey, if if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, you're a bunch of lame people and you have my pity because you're hoping in something that didn't happen. You're in a bad way. Verse 30, and as for us, Think about all the persecution Paul went through in his life. Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? And that reference there, some of the emperors were known. We don't know for sure if this is what happened to Paul, but they throw the Christians in the arenas. And they put them in animal skins and, and let animals loose on them. But he's like, why did I go through all that? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's he saying there? He's not saying to him, hey, it's good that you're at least trying to pour your life out for something meaningful. You're trying to bless people, to sacrifice for them. He's like, you're stupid. If Jesus is not raised... You ought to just go live for yourself. Just do whatever you want to do. Put yourself on the throne of your life and have fun because your life's going to end one day and it stops in the grave. So you might as well live it up for you while you can. Don't be stupid and give yourself away for other people. If Christ is not raised, let us eat and drink for, hey, tomorrow we die. You start to get the feeling that for Paul, if the, the resurrection didn't really happen... This whole thing is just a waste of time, right? It's just a waste of time. We're just playing a game. Now, this would be a really weird Easter sermon if we were going to stop right here. (laughs) I'll admit that. This this is not conventional, but Paul's not always conventional. That's part of why I love him. What's going on here, many of you guys know this, is throughout this chapter, Paul has been setting us up. Helping us understand how horrible, how hellish life would be if the resurrection of Jesus Christ had not really happened. In an attempt to help us appreciate it for all that it means in our lives. Verse 20, he turns a corner in the chapter. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And it's almost like you guys all know the old notion, you don't really appreciate what you have until, until it's gone. 
I'm like that whenever Carolyn's away for a day or two. I'll admit there are times I take my lovely wife for granted. I don't love her all the ways I should, but man, when she's gone a day or two, I cannot wait till she gets back home. I appreciate her that much more. When she, when she was touched with melanoma skin cancer seven years ago, and thank God she has no more today. I'll tell you what, walking through that journey not knowing where that was in her body made me appreciate the fact that I have her in my life. That's what Paul's doing with the resurrection. He's helping these people see if you didn't have it. Oh my goodness, but you do. He's saying the resurrection is real. It's real. Everything I just talked to you about was just a nightmare. Here's reality. The resurrection really has happened and it changes everything. Now I want to go through it a little bit. He's saying, guess what? Our preaching is no longer useless. Our preaching is presenting the only way to eternal life to people that need a savior. Your faith is meaningful because it's not based on how you felt when you got up this morning. It's based on a historic event that really happened. A a real living flesh and bones God and flesh that died on a real wooden cross and walked out of a real tomb alive after dying a real death for your real sins. Your faith is based on a historical event. You're not false witnesses. You're true witnesses because when you tell people about Jesus dying for your sins and rising again, you're speaking the truth into a world that so desperately needs it. And I love this one. If he really rose from the dead and you've trusted in that, you are not lost in your sin. All your sin is forgiven because he took it upon himself. He took it upon himself and he died for it in your place. And he rose again, defeating sin, Satan, the grave, death for you. Those who have died in Christ are not lost. They're in his presence today. And we are not to be pitied at all. But those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are the most blessed people to walk the face of this earth. This is where it gets interesting. Verbal, emotional, even physical suffering for Jesus is not pointless. It makes sense because he gave it all. It makes sense for us to give it all for him. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die no longer makes sense. If Jesus really rose from the dead, focusing only on earthly desires is foolishness. It's the pinnacle of stupidity if Jesus really is alive. I love the way Francis Chan put it. He said, our greatest fear should not be failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. That ought to burn onto our hearts as people that believe in a risen Savior. So what if I succeed at things that don't matter? Also, hopelessness in the face of death is gone. It's gone. We can say with Paul in verse 55 that'll come up here. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And guess what? Jesus paid for that. The power of sin is the law. Guess what? Jesus kept that entire law 
because we couldn't in our place. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that promise, we can stare death in the face and see it not as the enemy that would lead us to an eternal separation from our Heavenly Father, but simply as an escort into his eternal presence. You talk about some hope. Now listen, either Christ died for your sins and came back to life, or he didn't. Your believing in it does not make it true. Your not believing in it does not make it false. Either it happened or it didn't. But as we prepare to wrap up tonight, I want to land here. Your belief or unbelief in that moment in history is the very thing that will decide whether you get to enjoy the benefits of what he did or not. way John wrote it in John 3.16, a verse we all know. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's like I told the group at the memorial service I did on Thursday. The son who asked me to do it, it was his mother that had, had passed away. He was in her hospital room on January 29th. And he said, Mom, I need to talk to you. And he said, Mom, there's two, two destinations when we leave this planet. There's heaven and there's hell. I want you to know when you leave this earth where you're heading. Do you want to know you're going to heaven? And she said, yes. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't go through a list of how many times you've been to church, Mom, how many people you helped, how, how'd you treat Dad? How'd... He said, no, this is what Jesus did for you, Mom. He took your sin upon himself. He paid for it. He rose again to conquer it. And all you need to do is place your trust in that and that alone. And he said in that hospital room on January 29th, he prayed with his mother and they wept tears of joy. I told him, man, the Bible says to honor your father and mother. I cannot think of a better way to honor your parents than to take them the words of life. Well, we shared that with that group on Thursday, and we went through Psalm 23, but, but we told them, hey, you want God to be your shepherd. He's, he's not your shepherd just because you came here and heard this Psalm 23 today. He's not your shepherd just because you go to church or do good things. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And what that means is the only way to claim God's promises as your good shepherd is through Jesus. By believing what Jesus did on that cross and in his resurrection. I want to talk to the believers in the room. If you believe this, if you've made that decision and you trust in this historic event. I want to close where Paul closes in verse 58. Look at his application. If this is true, therefore, that's what that means. If this is true, because of all this, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Whatever you're going through in your life, if Jesus really died and rose again and is alive today, stand firm. Whatever is staring you down, let nothing move you because there's a risen Savior in your life. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
If Jesus is alive, it doesn't make sense to half-heart our service for him in this world. If he really died the death that you watch in the passion of the Christ for you and rose again, what makes sense is for us to throw everything away and consider it rubbish, as Paul said, compared to knowing Christ as our Savior. He's worth it. He's worth that. That's the application for us believers. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not sure, though. You're not sure about what Jesus did, about his resurrection. My encouragement to you would be to search it out. Take your questions to him. Look around. Ask him to show you, are you real? Did did this really happen? He's not trying to hide from you. He, He longs to show you that. Ask someone you know that does believe in Jesus. Why do you believe? How do you turn your life around? What, what made you believe? Read some books like More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell or The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, both men who were once skeptics but asked the questions and the questions led them to the truth. Open the book of John in your Bible and ask them to show you for yourself. Timothy Keller great pastor in the United States said it this way. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching. It's not that, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's what matters. So if you search it out and you come to the conclusion somehow that he's not the son of God and he didn't do this for you, at at the very least, you will know that you searched it out for yourself and you weren't just buying something that somebody else sold you. At the very least. But at the most, if you discover as I have the grace and forgiveness that covers everything you've ever done, the first true unconditional love in your life, If that's what you find in in the reality of the cross and the resurrection, and you put your trust in that, you will have found the only way to eternal life. As we talked about at our missional community this week, eternal life is not just something that starts someday in heaven forever. Jesus defined eternal life as knowing God the Father and the one he sent. Eternal life is having that relationship with God that fills every hole you ever had. That's a risk I'd say is worth taking if you're here and you haven't searched it out yet. I encourage you to do that. And if you do place your trust in Jesus, you can say with Paul, as he said earlier, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what a promise we have this weekend. It makes me so excited, God, uh, more, more excited than, than any sport or, or worldly thing could ever get me, Lord, to believe that you came and died for me, you rose again. It, it's worthy of our faith. It's worthy of our trust. It's worthy of our surrender. It's worthy of our everything. You are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that if there are believers in here in need of encouragement tonight that you would minister to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to stand firm with the risen Savior. 
Help us to let nothing move us. And help us in the power of the Spirit to joyfully give everything in our service to you, Jesus. And I pray for any that are in this room or maybe feeling that tug to search it out. God, help them to follow through on that. Maybe they're here and they're ready. They've heard about what you did for them, Jesus. If that's you here tonight, I'd encourage you to just pray with me. Dear Father, thank you for sending your son to die for my sins. I couldn't pay for him. He did. Thank you for rising again, Jesus. Victorious. I put all my weight, all my trust in that for my salvation. Man, if you prayed that prayer, the hope of this resurrection is yours. Spirit, do your mighty work. Thank you for transforming Paul's life. Thank you for transforming ours. And thank you for using him to pass on this message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.